Thank you very much for inviting me uh, to give the annual lecture at the Welsh Government Centre, Richard. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Um, the centre, uh, my book, is a hugely important resource needed more than ever in the world we now find ourselves in. Uh, both in and out of government, I've been a consumer and a beneficiary of the work that you, you do and the understanding you bring uh, to devolution and to the place of Wales in the United Kingdom and the wider world. I have to say, your research wasn't always entirely comfortable uh, for somebody <coughs> who was doing the bidding of UK ministers, but it was always uh, important and necessary. And it has invariably added <coughs> to the richness of the public debate and inform the appreciation of the choices that governments, UK and Devolve, uh, have to make. Uh, when we agreed to this lecture, I'm not sure that you, certainly I, uh, knew that we would, uh, uh, be, I would be speaking just three days before what I think is going to be one of the most seismic uh, in its outcomes at UK general elections in decades. I am no longer a civil servant, but I still have some of those sort of slightly nervous civil service ticks about uh, talking about politics, particularly at sensitive times. I'm getting over it anyway. Um, so I am released tonight, but anyway, it was, uh, I thought it was, it, was, it was interesting timing. And I put it down, Richard, to your prescience, to the brilliance of your political foresight, yeah, uh, recognising that this was going to be the week of a general election when we planned all of this, um, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, but very clever. Thank you very much for that. Um, so I am going to be trying to uh, be reflective. The timing sort of adds piquancy to any attempt to describe the murky territory into which the country now heads. And any reflective analysis risks being swept away in a torrent of post-election excitement. But I hope that at least some of what I have to say leaves a lingering resonance and helps you here to imagine yourself into the possible futures that lie ahead and to shape your responses accordingly. So I want to say a little bit about the possible outcomes of the election on Thursday and what they might mean while avoiding the risk of prediction. I've been burned often enough, as have many of us over the last few years. I call the Scottish referendum right, but got everything else since wrong, so I'm not going to try and predict. Um, uh, but I want to peer a little deeper to seek to understand the nature of what is going on in this country and what it might mean for the future of the United Kingdom. For whoever claims the keys to number 10 in the days ahead will have to deal with surging cross-currents of newly forming and reforming questions of identity and national allegiance that have, I believe, the capacity to rock this union to its foundations. Brexit at heart has been and is about sovereignty and through that identity. I want to look at how the concept has played out in the Brexit debate and how it relates to the pattern of nationalism within the United Kingdom. I will explore how the forces unleashed by the EU referendum might resonate through the British state and its structures, and I will examine the capacity of our institutions to handle the roiling pressures of identity politics and finish by asking how the incoming government might cope with the challenge of holding this other union together. Think of it as my manifesto for incoming. Uh, there's no common template here. As all this plays out over the years ahead, the story will look and feel different in different parts of the UK. One of the frustrations, Derek might share this with me, of dealing with UK governance issues at the centre of the UK government was getting the devolved parts of the UK 
out of peripheral vision into clear focus. Many of you will have shared that frustration directly or vicariously with the added irritation of almost invariably finding Wales as an afterthought to the more pressing politics of Scotland or Northern Ireland. And as Richard says, a Yorkshire-born Englishman who's lived over now half my life uh, in Scotland and worked for 20 years for various incarnations of government in Scotland, I confess to my own biases and doubtless you will spot them in what I have set to say tonight. But one of the really great responsibilities I had for the seven years that I ran the UK governance group up to March this year, looking after devolution, was to work with the really brilliant folk in the Wales office, to whom could I say I pay the warmest, warmest tribute, uh, Glyn Jones and his team as great friends of Wales, and advocates, I saw this closer than anybody, advocates for the interests of Wales in the councils of the UK government. So that leaves with no excuse, Wales has to be central to what I have to say. But first off, to the election. Now, you can all read the polls and you will have your own private and public predictions as well as wishes as to the outcome. And some of us will prove to have been wise before the event. More of us, as is a way of these things, will prove to have been wise after the event. Uh, we will have still, I think, three plausible outcomes in order of plausibility. This is telling you no more than what the polls are telling us. A Conservative majority government, a hung parliament leading to a minority Conservative government, and a hung parliament leading to a minority Labour government in some sort of loose deal with one, two or more other parties. So far, so unspecific. Is there anything crunchier that we can say now? I think there are three things. Firstly, whatever anyone has said in the course of this campaign, Brexit will by no means and in no guise be done any time soon. The likelihood still is that we will leave on the 31st of January, but the resolution of our new relationship with the EU will be years in the sorting. Indeed, in most Brexit futures, the UK will be in interminable negotiations with the EU pretty much forever. We need to get used to that. Even if we find ourselves led by a government committed to a renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement and a subsequent referendum on the outcome, do not be beguiled by the falsely comforting notion that there is somehow a return to the status quo ante if the result of that referendum is a decision to remain. The last three and a half years have fundamentally altered uh, perceptions of the UK in the EU and of the EU in the UK. Likely close on half the country will be bitterly disappointed at that outcome and feel cheated by it. Every move by every UK minister in every UK, EU council will risk becoming the object of political controversy and cries of betrayal at home. At what point can a new normal emerge when the trials and tribulations of membership of the EU become again no more than a background grumbling to the more intense drama of domestic politics and when the UK can be reliably predictable on how, how it holds itself in the affairs of the Union. My contention would be no time very soon. Secondly, this election really has been the Brexit election. Despite all the attempts 
to take attention onto other issues, in particular the NHS. Brexit has stubbornly remained the top issue. The Leave and Remain camps have, I think we've seen, begun to sort themselves. The former clustering around the Conservatives, the latter assigning themselves less comfortably and variably to Labour, Lib Dems or nationalist parties. The centrality of Brexit is not, I would contend, an artefact of clever campaigning by any particular political party. That is, I think, rather insulting to the intelligence of the electorate. It is rather because more people now care about what membership of the EU or otherwise means for them and their sense of identity. Maybe it took a visceral referendum campaign to unleash that concern, but unleashed it is, and I see no prospect of it going back into its box. To quote Peter Kellner of YouGov, Brexit has completely transformed Britain's political landscape by prompting millions of voters to rethink their politics and their party loyalties. I buy that. Thirdly, as with other recent elections, this campaign has not really been won, but more like four elections. Northern Ireland, of course, has always danced to its own tune. In Scotland, the layering is now multiple and very complicated, left-right, on nationalist unionists, on leave remain. Just before coming down, I saw one of the, uh, on Twitter, a short piece of uh, how people should vote in my own uh, constituency. I live in East Lothian in Scotland, and so it's complicated, and they change their minds, it's so complicated, between the different parties competing in that constituency, in that story, true of across Scotland. Wales, of course, different again, perhaps closer to the English pattern, but driven by different cross-currents. After the relative success of Plaid in the European elections, the question will traditional Labour dominance reassert itself while holding, holding off uh, the Conservatives? I know some more polling out just this evening that suggests they are still holding their nose in front just, but will that change on the night? And in England, we may be about to witness the biggest reorientation of political allegiance uh, in many a year. So where does the election campaign leave us? It leaves, as I suggest, with questions of self-determination, of identity and of sovereignty preeminent in our politics in a way that we have never really experienced before. To choose self-determination at whatever level of governance is, of course, a legitimate political act. It has been fundamental, a fundamental tenet of the rise of the nation-state across the globe since at least the mid-19th century. And it is a concept of such enormous political power because, of course, it speaks to our sense of who we are and our place in the world. And that power has been self-evident in the whole Brexit debate, but I think underestimated throughout and still underestimated by those whose own sense of identity is less thorough to the nation-state and more comfortable with a membership of a wider community of nations. For the assertion of sovereignty in an end of, uh, of, uh, on its own, in an end to itself, is really the only point of Brexit. There is barely any other question to which Brexit is the answer. Why the Brexit campaign to be, became to be so dominated by the question of sovereignty will be long argued over by future historians. I doubt any analysis will find that there were many in the country who shared the peculiar neuroses of the hardline Eurosceptics, 
prone to the night terrors about the supremacy, supremacy of the Court of Justice of the EU or the extension of co-decision and qualified majority voting. Rather, I suspect that the evidence will show that this was not simply an argument about the EU, but more an upwelling of discontent arising from a deeper sense of disenfranchisement of which the EU became the symbol. Take back control was such a powerful slogan, precisely because it spoke to that sense of disenfranchisement and promised the return of something that many felt they had lost for themselves, their families and their communities. And this is powerful stuff, as illustrated in the way in which the arguments about Brexit have been proofed against fact, both through the campaign and beyond. Many people were not looking to the facts to make up their minds, but were willing to retrofit or ignore the facts as suited their deeper emotional attachment to the cause they espoused. We saw the same in the Scottish referendum, and we see it still with ever more imaginative interpretations by those of a nationalist inclination of the Scottish government's own numbers on the size of the Scottish deficit. To quote Burns, Burns wrote that facts are chills that win a ding and then be disputed. Unhappily, anybody want a translation of that? So that broadly means facts can't be overturned and shouldn't be disputed. Unhappily, even in Burns' own home country, the facts have very regularly been dinged a lot recently. Facts did not change the debate and aren't changing it. In short, it was the sovereignty argument that won it. The problem this leaves us with is working out precisely whose sovereignty it is that we have taken back control of. Sovereignty needs a boundary, a state apparatus, a national identity. But the sovereignty of Brexit has been laid on the complex of existing identities within the United Kingdom. So a fair question to ask, who owns Brexit sovereignty? Not the Scots, at least not the sizeable majority who voted to stay in the EU. For some in the nationalist community, sovereignty is indivisible and they duly voted to leave the EU, having already voted to leave the UK. But for most nationalists, EU membership is part of the means to the greater end, Scottish separation from the UK. And there are many other Scots, not of a nationalist persuasion, whose view of this union has been shaken by the decision to leave the other one. Not the nationalist community in Northern Ireland, who also voted by majority to stay in the EU. Perhaps the DUP, but they may by now have realised that if there is a planet on which Brexit would further consolidate the place of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom, it's not this one. And what about Wales? Not the nationalist community here, nor the Indicurious, nor, I guess, most of Welsh Labour. Perhaps then those who cleave to a British identity. For many, undoubtedly, in all parts of the UK, Brexit is a reassertion of Britishness. But that cannot be the whole of the explanation. We know that identification as British is more consistent with an urban, more culturally and ethnically mixed demographic, not the heartlands of Leave support. Which leaves us with the nationalism that rarely speaks its name, English nationalism. And the evidence is there, the correlation between self-definition as English, lots of work that Richard and team have done, and hostility to the EU, and the apparent willingness of Leave voters in their majority to prioritise leaving the EU over sustaining the United Kingdom. 
Has Brexit therefore given form to something so long unexpressed in British politics? This confronts, I think, any incoming government with an unprecedented concatenation of pressures, whether we head through the exit door and into the fraught negotiations on the future relationship, or towards a renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement and another bitingly awful referendum campaign, the swirling winds of identity politics that Brexit has further strengthened are unlikely to die down any time soon. The further trajectory of the three devolved parts of the UK is as uncertain as it has ever been. The prognosis for Northern Ireland is difficult to read. Will there have to be further assembly elections in another attempt to break the impasse? Will the DUP and Sinn Féin feel obliged to resurrect the executive? Beneath the surface, the polls uh, are, seem to indicate a shift in sentiment, not yet decisive enough to trigger a border poll, but an indicative of a significant change in mood. A mid-September poll had a slight majority in favour of unification, as important, importantly, younger people are more likely to vote for uh, to support unification than the older generation. There is already a longer-term drift of demographics in favour of the nationalist community, whether through a front stop or a backstop, one way or the other, post-Brexit arrangements will lead to further integration of the all-island island economy. Is Brexit accelerating the momentum towards majority support for unification? Scotland remains split down the middle on the question of independence. Most recent polls have been uh, literally at 50-50, though one uh, just this week. Uh, in the Times saw support for independence dropping back to around 44%, in other words, around 2014 levels, so some volatility. There have been shifts beneath the surface as some who voted no to independence now prioritise putative membership of the EU for an independent Scotland over remaining in the UK. In the other direction, some former yes voters appear to be even less happy about membership of the EU than they are about continuing in the UK. But the interesting thing, all told, there is now probably a majority of Scots who have either voted already for independence in the independence referendum in 2014, who, or who now, according to polls, say that they would. There may be a, few, a bumpy few months ahead for the SNP, for reasons which you can all guess at, but placing a bet right now on the outcome of the May 21 parliamentary elections in Scotland would be very brave. If the nationalists and their allies win a majority on an explicit referendum ticket in those elections, can Westminster refuse uh, another referendum without risking a lurch towards Catalan-style dysfunction? How would the nationalists respond to that? Would such a scenario precipitate a split between the gradualists and the fundamentalists? Either way, not a comfortable situation for the stability of the country. And what about Wales? Are we really looking now at about 20% of Welsh voters supporting independence, as recent polls have suggested? Is this a quirk of disturbed times or the start of something new? Either way, will we see the pressure on Welsh Labour to continue to outflank Plaid by asserting ever more vigorously its defence of Welsh interests? And how, over time, do they square that with a continued defence uh, of the UK Union. And whither in all of this, England? 
Will all the passion that has been stirred up by the Brexit debate simply seep away into the sands if and when we actually leave the EU? What happens when people wake up to the inevitability that Brexit is very far from being done? And what if taking back control is not all it's cracked up to be? Espousing a cause like Brexit, even in defiance of the economic logic, is still driven by a belief that it will make people feel better about themselves and their place in the world. For community, communities which had no control, economically and politically marginalised, buffeted by globalisation and incomprehending of a metropolitan value set, Brexit was one way to put their stamp on the world. What happens if nothing really seems to change? If politicians are locked in endless debate about how to deliver Brexit, if the UK economy grinds along the bottom in the slough of Brexit uncertainty, if Britain is palpably, palpably diminished in the world, what then for English sentiment? So Brexit, I think, gives additional momentum to the centrifugal forces already apparent in the UK. Are these forces now stronger than those that hold the UK together? Certainly the factors that drove Britishness in the 19th and 20th centuries and earlier have long weakened. Protestantism, empire, existential threats from a dominant military power on the continent. There was some compensation in the second half of the 20th century through the common endeavour of the creation of a national health service and the welfare state and a common cultural identity reinforced by the BBC. And there are still, of course, very important resonances there, but devolution will over time shift perceptions of a previously monolithic NHS and the common cultural experience is eroded by the explosion of personalised content. None of this is destiny. There is nothing ineluctable about a slide into disintegration of the United Kingdom. In no part of the UK is there yet a sustained majority in favour of dissolution or separation. But the pressures are immense and show no immediate signs of dissipating. It stands to reason that the primary responsibility of any incoming Prime Minister ought to be the territorial integrity of the state they inherit. Nothing is more important. I shouldn't really have to labour the point, but the breaking up of a union such as the United Kingdom would be a shatteringly complex and disruptive business. This does not belie the obligation of the Prime Minister of the land to respect the sovereign wishes of those people who make up the United Kingdom. Indeed, the duty to call a border poll, if opinion in Northern Ireland looks as though it has shifted in favour of unification, is baked into the Good Friday Agreement. It was surely a huge sign of democratic confidence and good sense that David Cameron agreed to the holding of a legal independence referendum in 2014, when the argument was strong that a resolution to that question, a once-in-a-generation decision, was necessary to maintain the stability of the Union. Things, of course, have not worked out quite like that, but that handling of the 2014 referendum remains an example to other more troubled parts of the world. You would wish any prime minister to wish, uh, uh, you would expect any prime minister to wish to avoid having to take such a step with all the risks attendant on it. By extension, you would expect the prime minister of the day to bend the will of the state 
to do its utmost to reinforce the value of this union to make the positive case for its continuation. So where will a union strategy, strategy be on the priority list of the incoming Prime Minister and what actions will that Prime Minister take? Let me have a quick look at the current state of affairs to ask what more, if anything, might be done to respond to the rising tide of identity politics. The Welsh Government, uh, Hugh Rawlings is not here tonight, but uh, it might have been, and uh, tribute to Hugh and all the work that he's done over the years on this, has got there before me with a series of typically cogent and logical proposals for reform of the UK Constitution, set out in their recently published document, Reforming Our Union Shared Governance in the UK. Committed to the union, yet deeply uncomfortable with the direction of travel of the UK government, above all on Brexit, the Welsh government has perhaps the most difficult uh, position of all in these debates. That tension obliges the Welsh government to be reasonable in its proposals, but it always finds its voice drowned out by the cacophony of more strident views. There is actually little in that document, in their proposals, that I would argue with, but let me give my own take on what an incoming UK government might or ought to contemplate. Firstly, on devolution. Devolution to Wales and Scotland, and in its current form to Northern Ireland, of course, barely 20 years old, and yet has undergone much change in that short space of time. Three Wales Acts, two Scotland Acts, I think I was responsible for at least three of those between them, uh, between the Wales and the Scotland ones, since the original Acts in 1998, perhaps speaks to the hurry to get devolution done in the first instance. In its own way, a classic of British constitutional change, pragmatic, conceived in response to pressure exerted from outside Parliament, enacted without a firm grounding in constitutional principle and thus incomplete. So the changes subsequent on the 1998 Acts could be seen as filling out that original conception of devolution as devolved governance has found its feet. Perhaps the lukewarm support for the devolution in Wales in its very early days was reason to constrain the legislative powers of the Assembly, but once established, it was entirely logical that the Assembly should insist on full powers to make its own legislation and to call itself a parliament. Likewise, the almost token tax-raising powers of the early devolution settlement have given way in Scotland Act 2016, and the Wales Acts 2014 and 17, to something that finally begins to match the power to spend money with the responsibility to raise it. The decision to design the devolution settlement without reference to some sort of benchmark of constitutional principle has left them differentiated in ways which, at the margins, look perverse. Perhaps the best example uh, is justice and policing, devolved in Scotland and Northern Ireland, but not devolved in Wales. Why? As the Thomas Commission has found, there is no good reason, my view, why the Welsh Parliament and Government should not manage its own police force and justice system. And as the Welsh Government has argued, the case is made stronger as the devolved legislature creates its own body of law. Moreover, devolution remains something that is handed down from the sovereign UK Parliament to Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. This is constitutional principle, but one that now seems very detached from constitutional reality. In theory, the UK Parliament could, by its own act, abolish the devolved legislatures. In practice, 
now unthinkable. This may seem like constitutional pedantry, but the, that sense that devolution is only there by grace and favour of a parliament dominated numerically by one of the four parts of the union is surely a factor in how the union is perceived. We have the declaratory provisions in the Scotland Act 16 and the Wales Act 17. Is that sufficient? Push much, push much harder on that brick and does the whole constitutional edifice start to wobble? This is perhaps the central quandary for any future UK government. Can the ramshackle structure that is the British constitution withstand the pressure on it? Would an attempt at a major rebuild including an act of union and radical reform of the House of Lords, consolidate the union, or simply lead to the crumbling of what might turn out have been load-bearing walls? I see no easy answer to that question, but it is one that cannot for much longer be ducked. Which brings us to England. We encounter again the transactional nature of British constitutional practice in the stop-go, stop-go relationship between Whitehall and the English regions and localities. Each government seems pretty much to want to do its own thing, which leads to the unravelling of the efforts of the previous incumbents and precious little time for anything to settle down to prove that it can actually work. The letting go of power from the centre is grudging and piecemeal and liable to be re reversed when a competing ideology overrules any localising instinct as we have seen with school education. Perhaps Metro mayors represent a point of no return when the momentum for the devolution of powers within England becomes irreversible. That is probably so already for the Mayor of London and the Greater London Assembly. It is probably becoming inconceivable that any Westminster government could do to the Mayor's office what Mrs Thatcher did to the Greater London Council. But Metro mayors and local government with their limited powers in the face of a still overbearing Whitehall can only absorb so much political pressure. So sensible and sustained, sustainable devolution within England is of course made tricky by the lack of identifiable regions of roughly equal scale and very different strengths of regional identities. That makes some sort of asymmetry in arrangements within England inevitable, but should not be an excuse for the failure to devolve meaningful power away from London. Surely one lesson of the Brexit referendum is that sense of disempowerment and disenfranchisement in the English regions has to be addressed. Taking Brussels off the scene is not very likely to change that lived experience for most people in the UK, giving them a connection to a more localised policy with real power to improve the lot of local communities might. England itself remains without represent representation other than the thin ground cover of English votes for English laws. At one time I had the joy of being responsible for evil. Um, many people believed it I was responsible for evil, um, in the other sense of the word, at the national level. England remains a puzzle, not least in the sphere of intergovernmental relations within the UK. By any reckoning, Brexit, if it happens, will demand a radical shift in the way that the four governments of the UK interact. The current system of intergovernmental relations was designed 
for what feels now like a very different era when one political party was dominant in England, Wales and Scotland and when the division of devolved and reserved responsibilities was for the most part reasonably clean. That has already begun to change with the devolution of tax and welfare powers but accelerates as powers come back from Brussels. Those powers, almost by definition, create cross-border impacts in their exercise. That was the reason for holding them at the Brussels level in the first place. Allowing each part of the UK to utilise those powers to the benefit of its own territory, while at the same time protecting the internal market of the United Kingdom, is going to require a step change in intergovernmental interaction and decision-making. The formal structure of intergovernmental relations will have to change to handle those emerging pressures. How far that change should go will be contested. As a minimum, there will have to be a more concerted effort to achieve consensual decision-making in the policy areas where the so-called common frameworks will be required to protect the UK internal market. But who gets to decide when there is a disagreement? Should there at least be some sort of process to expose the issue at hand to mediation, even arbitration, even if ultimately the UK government gets to assert its precedented right to decide? The problem, of course, is that the UK government acts also for England. This is the conundrum at the heart of intergovernmental relations within the UK. England is only represented at the table by the UK government. The UK government cannot therefore act as arbiter among or between the different parts of the UK. The risk inherent in this, particularly as Brexit unfolds, is that disputes will always pit the devolved governments against the UK government. More grist to a grievance mill. A full structural answer to this problem would involve major constitutional surgery, the creation of an English parliament, combined with substantially greater consolidation of regional representation with England. Neither, uh, you might uh, think uh, sadly or not, are likely to be on any visible horizon. But short of structural solutions, there is something that the UK government can do at its own hand and that is to demonstrate by its actions that it respects the respect with which it treats intergovernmental relations. That's partly about the effort put in, so regular meetings of the Joint Ministerial Committee, but also about the outcomes. How powerful would it be if a UK Prime Minister emerged from a meeting of the Joint Ministerial Committee to announce that on the strength of the representation from the devolved governments, the stated policy of the UK government had materially changed. There's a litmus test for you. If the union is so precious, the UK government will be seen to swallow its political pride from time to time and bow to pressure from those governments who represent the interests of the people of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. One temptation for an incoming government will be to use the power of the purse to assert the benefits of the union. The city deals for the devolved parts of the UK 
conceived in the heat of the Scottish referendum campaign to strengthen the case for the union, redress a lacuna in the original devolution settlements. The power of the central state to spend money in support of devolved competences, which is a feature of most federal systems of government. Spending alongside the devolved governments, as in the City Deal programme, can be a visible manifestation of collaboration for the common good, but will only be that if it is genuinely collaborative and does not become a way of the UK government seeking to operate over the heads of the devolved governments. But the power of the purse, of course, cuts two ways. It has not passed England by that Scotland and Northern Ireland do pretty well out of the Barnet formula, although there is almost certainly not much sympathy, I'm afraid, for Wales, for whom, of course, it works far less well. The Barnet formula, meant to be temporary, has proved to be enduring and has not delivered convergence either. Objectively, the financing of a union through an algorithm with such inbuilt inequities ought to be seen to be unsustainable. In practice, reform of the Barnet formula will always be one of those things for next year, and the resentments, little by little, will continue to grow. One thing almost wholly in the gift of an incoming government is how the union is handled in Whitehall. This is a little personal. It was my job for seven years, through a Scottish referendum, through major changes to the devolution settlements, and through the EU referendum and its aftermath to try to get Whitehall to understand the changed nature of governance within the United Kingdom. It has long been my contention, at times felt like a lonely one, that no policy pursued by any UK government department, whether in reserved or devolved space, can now be wholly successful unless it takes account of the interests of the devolved parts of the UK or learns from their experience. You won't weep for me, I've no doubt, but I suspect this audience will have some inkling that this sometimes felt like an uphill slog. There are, of course, many Whitehall officials, and there have been a number of Whitehall ministers who really do understand the nature of the times, and that devolution does not require less attention to be paid to what is going on in the devolved parts of the UK, as in devolve and forget, but more attention to be paid to them. I think we did make some progress over those seven years, not least through the commitment of the great team I worked with in the Constitution Group and in the Territorial Departments, but there is a way to go. For too many Whitehall officials, devolution is in the peripheral vision both literally and metaphorically. Too many still count in what I now think of as Whitehall miles, whereby the distance from London to Cardiff is greater than the distance from Cardiff to London. Work it out. Obviously, think about that one for a moment. Uh, the outgoing government commissioned Andrew Dunlop to unpack these issues and make recommendations on how Whitehall can improve its devolution act. There is no one better placed than Andrew to push this agenda up to the next level. It is important and it, it is urgent. And many of us will watch closely to see how the incoming government responds to his recommendations. So there's my starter for 10. My manifesto for the incoming government 
uh, might put some heft into union strategy, commit to remove the final anomalies in the devolution settlements, accelerate the process of devolution within England, show respect for the process of intergovernmental relations, concede on some policy outcomes specifically to acknowledge the interests of the devolved parts of the UK, use the power of the purse to construct collaborative projects to show how the UK government works for all parts of the UK, and reform processes in, in Whitehall to make UK government governance issues foremost and central to all that the UK government does. This is, I hope you will agree, quite a modest list. No need to wait for a constitutional convention. Uh, no need to create a federal structure. No need even to reform the House of Lords, long overdue though that is. But I fear I live more in hope than expectation. The manifestos of the two main parties are not exactly encouraging. Neither betrays much evidence of a recognition that holding the UK together might actually be the biggest challenge the next government faces, bar none. Brexit and the more pressing and other pressing social uh, uh, and economic issues will be excuse enough to put constitutional issues on the back burner. But under delivery on any part of that agenda, and the risk is that separatist tendencies will be further strengthened. So one final point. I have no doubt that any incoming government will swear obeisance to the continuation of the Union of the United Kingdom. It could do no other. But how deep will that commitment run? Ultimately, the future of this union will be deeply influenced by opinions and attitudes in England. Blithe indifference or blanking comprehension can be as corrosive as active separatism. This is really tough territory. Governments can make the law, change the constitution, spend the money and devise the policies. But shifting attitudes, even understanding how the cumulative impact of their own actions are perceived, is far harder. Most of what you might call the British establishment, political and well beyond, prays allegiance to the Union of the United Kingdom. Uh, United Kingdom. But I detect something of nostalgia in that affection, a lightly worn assumption that the Union is a good thing because it's always been there, combined with something bordering on incomprehension that anyone would want to break it up. There is a hint in this of what I think of as the background radiation of the Big Bang of Empire, the last faint echoes of the conceit that rule from London was benign and a good in and of itself. It is hard at times to see in this the recognition that this is a union of four sovereign parts, all needed persuaded to continue to pool their sovereignty if this union is to persist. This is not about condescension and subsidies. This is about the hard, gritty reality of understanding the needs and aspirations of all parts of the UK, of negotiations to achieve outcomes for the common good, seeking compromise with political opponents, and subsuming short-term political gain in the, in the interests of the whole. At the same time, are we seeing a slow draining of sentiment for the union at the level of the English street? We've seen the polling of leavers in general and Conservative Party members in particular, 
who would prioritise Brexit over keeping Scotland or Northern Ireland in the Union. Really? Even taking a discount for frustrations over Brexit, this is an extraordinary state of affairs that the members of the Conservative Party, the party ostensibly most committed to preserving the constitutional status quo in their majority, would rather see us leave a 45-year-old union, mainly economic in its intent and purpose, and preserve a union the ties of which are so much deeper uh, and are so much older. This is perhaps where the greatest challenge of all lies for the incoming government. Sustaining this union will require the commitment of scarce political resource and time. It will require collaboration and compromise. How will this resonate with a voter base that is disengaging emotionally from the union? Will the political will be there, not just to ride the criticism of things done to show respect for the interests of the people of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, but also to seek to turn back the tide of indifference among the people of England. On the answer to that question will hinge the future of the United Kingdom. Thank you very much for listening.